This is Binod Shankar and you're listening to the Real Finance Mentor podcast from the realfinancementor.com. The Real Finance Mentor is your go-to resource for insight and inspiration on careers in finance, CFA and more. I would think why this podcast? Well, my goal is to deliver insight and inspiration for your finance career by making it one relatable. This is not theoretical stuff. We zero in on the critical practical issues. Number 2, authentic. No bullshit, no sidestepping. The topics, guests and questions are all from that perspective. And number 3, take a chartered accountant CFA charter holder, add 17 plus years as a corporate warrior, mix in 10 years of entrepreneurship, through a decade of full-time CFA training, add speaking, mentoring, cycling and mountaineering, and that's me. Welcome to the real finance mentor, or as I call it, RFM. Hi everyone, this is Binod Shankar here, the real finance mentor. bringing you yet another installment of the RFM podcast that uh, is focused on providing insight and inspiration for your finance careers and my main ambition here is to look out for stories out there in the world of corporate finance or 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 um, financial services and see what's so unique what's inspirational what's insightful out there and then i try and grab that person and ask them to be on my show and they almost always say yes and one person who said yes is with me today and i'm very so glad that she's here um let me introduce you to pascal wasan uh, palpi um pascal is uh, the head of factset middle east and africa now for those who haven't heard of factset which i must admit uh, pascal should be highly unlikely they are investing uh, it's an american financial data and software company headquartered in Connecticut in the US um the company provides integrated data and software and its competitors include Bloomberg Refinitiv and S&P Global uh, now Pascal started her career in Paris then moved back to her home country which is Lebanon uh, 6 years later she moved to Dubai where she is now she joined Factset 5 years ago as the regional head for Middle East and Africa in her spare time she mentors young women which is another reason why I wanted her to be on the show and tries to help in any way she can um, other women to advance their careers. Recently, she became co-chair for the FactSet EMEA Women's BRG. She also likes uh, art, painting, decorating, and anything creative, which is very nice to know for someone working in finance. And she is the mother of two boys, advocate of work-life balance, and recently got certified as a health coach to help herself and her family be healthier. Pascal holds a master's in finance and a bachelor's in economics. Pascal, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you for having me here. Uh, <laughs> I told you. Uh, so Pascal, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you for having me. We still have that. Right. So, Pascal, let's start from the beginning, right? You grew up in Lebanon. I have this theory that almost all successful, confident women who come from developing countries must have had a childhood where the girl child was treated fairly and encouragingly and not in the typical narrow-minded, conservative, patriarchal manner that is so prevalent in such societies. Tell me about how you were raised and how that impacted your personality. 
uh, in brackets, by the way, I'm hoping that <laughs> your case proves my theory. Indeed, it does. Um, my story confirms your theory. So uh, I grew up in Lebanon. Uh, I grew up with two brothers, but I never felt that because I'm a girl or a woman, I had less uh, chances of achieving my dreams or anything. On the contrary, like I was always encouraged to do more, especially by my eldest brother, uh, who was, you know, always giving, encouraging me, giving me confidence uh, when I was passing through, you know, those teenage years where you kind of lack of uh, self-confidence. Um, and it's very motivating when someone uh, believes in you that much. Uh, it um, gave me a drive and a grit and a strong will to uh, actually um, move from being like an average student to a thriving student, a, a way for me to thank him. Uh, I think you guessed it. My brother is uh, my role model and was and still is. Um, but, you know, like uh, when young people ask me who's your role model and I see them always looking at, um, you know, like corporate CEOs or famous people, I'm not saying it's bad, but mm. I truly believe that the people who shape you are the people who are the closest to you, your uh, closest friends, your family. Uh, for me, it was my two brothers, uh, my sister-in-law, my mother, who um, at 45 years old, for example, uh, went back to uh, finish her master's and re-entered the workforce. Um, a story that shows that, you know, it's never too late to start again. Mm, it's interesting, you know, why look outside for a role model like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or some other corporate titan when you already have a role model at home? Um, my case, it is my mom, who was also an ex-college mm -hmm. professor, yeah. Um, now, you almost became a doctor, is what you told me. <laughs> now, medicine's yeah. lost became economics gain um, because you dropped out of medical college and completed a bachelor's degree in economics. What made you pick up um, economics, what they call the dismal science, you know? Did you have a specific career in mind at that time? Yeah, so I hope that this serves as an example that when you're 17, 18, it's okay not to have it um, all figured out. I know I don't, I didn't, or at least I thought I did, because I always wanted to be like kind of the fun doctor that, um, you know, serves uh, patients with empathy. Uh, but then during this first year, uh, I felt so lost. Uh, I felt a sense of failure and I was really lost. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, so I thought, okay, let me do architecture because uh, I do like creative uh, things um, or economics because at the time uh, the banking sector was really thriving in Lebanon. Unfortunately, it's no longer the case. So I felt that there is career, uh, uh, you know, potential. But also, um, you know, by coincidence, courses in economics started earlier than architecture. So I said, okay, let me give it a try. And I started, I really liked the courses. Um, I started to gain my confidence back. Uh, and I felt that, you know, it's, um, it's something I can build a career with. Um, I might not be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer like every Arab mother wants. <laughs> Probably the same in India. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, after economics degree, Pascal, you went to France, right? For a two years master's degree in finance. That must have been a culture shock for you after growing up, like you said, in war-torn Lebanon. And even Lebanon post the 1990 Taif peace accord wasn't really that normal. 
Um, what are the three things that you learned from that experience of shifting from uh, Lebanon to a Western country and living there and working there and you know, going to college there? What was the three things that has stuck with you all this while? Yeah. So just another example here of how, as a woman, I um, always could do what I want. So I wanted to start after my bachelor to start working and helping the family. It's my brother again that said, you know, encourage me to um, go to France. And uh, I applied uh, to France and I went to two very well-known universities in Paris. Um, and, you know, like I often look and wonder how my life would have been if I uh, hadn't done that. Mm -hmm. On the personal level, uh, you know, I wouldn't have met my husband, uh, but also on the professional level, it opened up so many doors for me that, uh, you know, I'm uh, very grateful on that. Um, on the culture shock, it's more like as a Lebanese, uh, when you go to a French school, you are exposed to French culture. So I wouldn't call it a shock of culture. It was more once in Paris, I noticed that, you know, uh, in what I lived, uh, during my youth, the war, even though I ha didn't have it as bad as others, and wasn't normal. Uh, I remember like uh, crying the first time I went to uh, Disney because I've never seen that, um, mm -hmm. or like taking the bus just to go by the monuments that I, you know, learned uh, in books during school time. And you know, I do love Paris. So. <laughs> well, about the three things that uh, stayed with me, I would say. Um, First, like if an experience is scary, um, do it. Like uh, whether it turns out to be what you expect or not, or even better, you always learn through the process. Like for me, it was very scary to take the plane for the first time ever at 20, at 21 years old and live by myself uh, in a foreign country. Um, you know, and I'm very grateful that I did that. Second, what really helped me there is, um, and I would say to do that with your kids is uh, to make them street smart, to make them, you know, not to um, take hardships and uh, dwell on it for ages, like think about the solution, and manage uh, to get back on their feet quickly so that, you know, they value things more, they see the bigger picture. I always say that gratitude, like now it's very a la mode or trendy, it's not a new thing for Lebanese. Like uh, when, you, when you grow up during a war and then you start having, uh, you know, calm period, you realize that, uh, you know, we always say in Lebanon, whatever happens to you, you always say, okay, thank you God for whatever I have. So mm. um, I think this is really important and, um, it is something, for example, that my husband realized when he moved to Lebanon and uh, it helped him uh, see things differently. And finally, I would say be genuine and true to yourself. Um, I'm a true believer that what uh, goes around comes around. Um, and, you know, I saw it in France that people randomly would help me. Uh, and I try to you know, keep that in mind. So if you can help do it. Um, be you were once in someone's shoes, so just mm. be humble and try to help as much as possible. Yeah, I think it was a brilliant decision on your part, Pascal, to go from Lebanon to France, because I've talked to a lot of my friends and former students, and they said the best thing they ever did, or what their parents did, was to send them overseas, you know, to the US or UK or Canada or Australia mm. for, for the education, because yeah. you learn so many new things uh, from a look at things from a different perspective, things like that. 
Uh, and you're right as regard the resilience. If you if you grow up in a place like Watton, Lebanon, you become very resilient, right? You become quite tough. Um, and that's something that people say a lot about Lebanese people, that uh, they are very good survivors, so to speak. Um, now, proceeding with the career, after a short internship at uh, AGF Asset Management in France, um, as fund management assistant, right? You joined Thomson Reuters as help desk advisor. After seven months, uh, you were promoted to help desk manager, the very young age of 25. Now, my question here is, what were the traits they saw in you for you to get promoted so quickly? Yeah, so it's funny when you contacted me for the podcast, it's like, uh, you know, energies were coming uh, back and uh, colleagues, ex-colleagues contacted me again, either through a phone call um, or even like a friend or an ex-colleague came uh, on vacation to Dubai, I saw her and I got to ask, the, like, I wanted to find it the answer from me, but then I thought, what is what is better than asking the source? So I did get the chance to ask the person who was part of the interview. And um, the reasons he gave was that, uh, you know, it's my smile, my passion, the energy, but also combined to calmness that was very important to manage a health desk. You know, how uh, everyone who's unhappy would first call uh, the health desk. Another thing he mentioned was that I was always mentioning like the team, and what I can be of help to the team, which uh, made me stand up. Um, I was definitely like the challenger. And, and here I really appreciate the fact that um, the company and the team took a chance on me. And, I, and this is something that I don't forget, I won't forget. And I do like uh, when people do that without making you feel that you owe them anything. Mm -hmm. And at one point, Pascal, you wanted to go back to fund management, right? And, and you wrote right. and, and you passed level one CFA. That's something in common between us, right? We have a CFA link finally. <laughs> <laughs> but then soon after your boss at Thomson Reuters asked you to stay in sales and you agreed. Mm -hmm. And soon your CFA journey stopped as well. Now, you told me earlier when we had the discussion that you're glad that you listened to her. Looking back, yeah. tell me three reasons why staying in sales was, in retrospect, the best decision for you. Yeah, okay. So just for the story, I, um, I did want to be a portfolio manager. So that's also the second step where you think, okay, I got it figured out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> portfolio management is going to be what I'm going to do. And I landed the role in uh, AGF. And I was shadowing, by the way, the head of asset allocation, which was a very strong woman that I was even scared of a little bit. And, uh, but she was very talented. And the team at that time was very diverse, which is surprising in, uh, mm. 18 years ago in, uh, <laughs> in this line of work in France. Um, and to go back to like my Thompson Financial days, um, I was still managing actually the head desk and I wanted to go into my next step. So uh, the head of region gave me two choices. Um, the product management role of our solution for portfolio management or a sales role. And I was leaning to the, towards the first one. Um, and she insisted, like she said, um, no, go into the sales uh, uh, role. Um, 
And I really thank her for that for multiple reasons. Uh, first, the role itself, the product management role, actually didn't happen. So okay. it was uh, actually uh, the fate, how fate happened. But um, it's, it's also like a lot of things that I learned through, uh, through this um, in, in different sales roles, like hybrid, account management, new business, prospecting. All these roles teach you a lot. Um, they thickened my skin, so it makes you even more resilient. So I was resilient from what I lived in Lebanon, but uh, in the business side of resiliency, maybe not. So uh, it did uh, help me in that, and um, and it you know it it opens a lot of doors to meet a lot of different people, um, and you know what I always say also like perseverance is the first trait that I see in a salesperson because you try so much so many times to get a prospect and it's only like the hundred times that it does so when you have this so it, it also you know showed me how perseverance is important I could have decided to stay like a young manager and then moving from a management role to another but I felt that if I do that I wouldn't bring anything more to the table to a more experienced team um, I felt that sales really brought this um, on the ground learning that I would use in life in general, not only in, uh, in work. Like I, I think we all, all negotiate in everyday life. So. Mm, interesting. You know what? I mean, people sometimes look down upon sales as something not technical and they don't want to get their hands dirty. But I think was it Naval Rivikant or some famous investor or best-selling author said, sales is a critical skill that one everyone must have because at with, whether you're in finance or marketing or engineering or wherever you're always selling something to someone right even if you're selling yourself or your services or your cv so interesting perspective that and, and good for you that you switched to sales right um, now let's talk about your time as um, with with your bosses right Anyone who spent 18 years, as you have done in a career, must have had all sorts of bosses, right? The good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm sure <laughs> you are not an exception. <laughs> I mean, I know I have had, had my share of all three. Now, they say you learn even from your bad bosses. So I've got two questions for you regarding the world of bosses. Number one uh, is, what are the three habits you picked up personally from your best bosses? that has helped you in your career so far? Yeah, so definitely I had my share. <laughs> I have even all, more than my share, I would say, because of all the restructuring. Mm. Um, but uh, luckily I had many more good bosses than bad bosses. From the good bosses, uh, I learned that, you know, trusting and having your teams back, uh, shielding them from un unnecessary like politics or friction, is important because um, like when I think about the challenges that I had in my career, it was always, it always came from a lack of trust um, or like from a manager who wanted to save their skin first uh, oh. or um, take a credit for the team's work. Um, other examples were uh, like where managers weren't really fighting for you um, and you were left all alone managing internal politics. Um, I did live through a very large merger, and during that time, there was a lot of um, uncertainties, um, 
that can stress an employee. I was actually getting married the same year and sitting for my uh, CFA level two. I was still trying to get it. Um, and you know, some stress could have been prevented with the proper communication or a proper uh, filtering too. So I think it's really important. And I learned that from the good managers of how they do by managing up and down in a very um, thoughtful manner, I would say. Mm. And you know, like sometimes, um, Luckily, I had those managers that trusted me and I could see how my performance was different in those teams, like I was giving my best and even more and no wonder like I was doing uh, well with, uh, with them because, you know, the way of how they treated me, it gave me that extra boost. Yeah, and even like um, I can think of a, a time also that it made me comfortable speaking up in very delicate situations. Uh, because I knew that it was a safe space, I, I did have someone who backs me up, uh, despite, you know, uh, like any employee being uh, worried about uh, retaliation risk or anything. So right. that's one. Hmm. Um, second would be like understand what motivates or demotivates your team members. Empathy is uh, really important. And, um, you know, you can't manage everyone in the same way. I learned it. Uh, shadowing senior managers in my first management experience um, and you know you have to know your team members and to get to know them you have to like uh, sit with them ask them questions know uh, know about their lives um, I remember I was very scared when I got my role like first um, I was the youngest and second I was the last one arrived <laughs> and everyone had more experience but even one person was really much older than me. And I was like mm. thinking, how am I going to add value for him? How am I going to uh, be credible uh, and build trust with this person? And um, actually, you know, just by talking with this person during that time, they were going through um, personal challenges and just being there, listening, supporting him as a manager made me build um, a good relationship with him. So again, you have to ask those questions. I, are your team members motivated by money, work-life balance, recognition, or anything else? Just so, so you know how to adapt your uh, management mm. style. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, like um, and all this <laughs> for the for the small anecdote. At that time, when I was shadowing those managers, at that time, Thompson Financial we were all women managers. So I don't know if empathy is natural because that was happening there, but. Uh, you know, I, I, I would like to think that it's not, but it's, it was, you know, it's really important when you see an office in Paris where it's not very, it wasn't at, at that time very like diverse, mm. uh, being led by uh, women from diverse uh, background, even our CEO of Thompson Financial was a woman at that time. So, and, you know, you see it, uh, like I remember I was stuck in uh, 2006 with my husband and uh, in the war in Lebanon and um, the amount of effort that the team and the managers put through just to try to get us back. They didn't uh, you know, manage to do it, but it's just mm. until today, uh, it kept a really important um, message with me. And um, I really valued, I really felt valued and taken care of. Mm. And third, I would say, uh, listen, <laughs> I think it's harder and yeah. harder, but I, when I look at um, the best managers that I had, 
where people who listen to me like in one-to-ones, but also let me speak up, uh, let me speak in meetings, like if their managers were there and if they wanted to convey an idea that I had instead of like saying it themselves, giving me uh, the opportunity to do it myself, uh, giving me this visibility, um, asking me about my career aspiration. And even if like on the spot, they cannot do something about it, um, they would come six, nine months down the line and, you know, show me that they were actually listening. Mm. Um, I always say that, um, you know, when I mentor junior salespeople, um, they always ask me why I don't speak up when there's awkward silences in the, in the client meetings. And, that, and for me, it's like the first rule that I've ever learned. And I find this rule really important, even on the phone when I was prospecting, like, um, you know, it was something that really worked for me. And I always say, no, pause and let them recollect their thoughts. They're going to give you a lot of valuable information. But if you speak first, you lost them. So um, mm. I always get offended when uh, I hear, yeah, he's a good salesperson because he speaks a lot and knows how to pitch and everything and yeah mm. um so so yeah this is uh, this is it and i think listening is really uh, harder and harder um you know our attention span is uh, shorter and uh, <laughs> yeah like we multitask we do a lot of uh, things at the same time so i would say those are the three um things that i would uh, that i learned from uh, my good my best managers <laughs> right Good ones. Now let's talk about the, the bad ones, right? What are the three habits you decided never to do by watching your worst bosses uh, that later supported your growth as a manager? Yeah. So I would say like the when I also rethink about the bad managers, um, I think those are were good individual contributors that were given a role um, as a manager just because Think, people think that, you know, this is how a career should go. But some people are not just, are just not, um, you know, management materials. So the first one I would say, like, um, that happened, like an uh, example that happened and where it's something that I try, you know, even though as a manager, you always come with your ideas and you think um, it's hard not to, you know, suggest things, etc. But it's about um, judging a new, a new team and without learning first what are their market challenges, what what are, you know, like the specificities of the region they are in. So um, to, to motivate the team, you know, before you give them ideas from 10,000 feet, you have to know what's uh, going on. And I sadly experienced this. <laughs> Um, where um, I got like uh, messages that weren't very empathetic also, like it was Arab Spring um, and someone sitting uh, completely out of the region uh, that thought, you know, that this is like normal, uh, what is happening in our region. So, um, and, you know, for me, I'm motivated by recognition and acknowledgement of all the efforts I was making, um, what, what would have went a long way. Um, it's always easier, like, as, as I say, it's always, I, I also do it sometimes, like, it's always easier to judge uh, from the outside. Um, but when you do that without knowing the region, have never been there here, um, not knowing the clients, etc., uh, it just doesn't go well with the team. And I, I remember that this time was really hard uh, in my career, um, but um, I got through it uh, thanks to my peers and my colleagues. 
uh, that you know their encouragement. They were seeing me how much how much I was still persevering and trying, etc. And their encouragements were enough for me to get through. But this is something that I always keep in mind. It's like I don't know more than the team. Um, just because I, my title has manager in it. So, yeah, really important. Mm. Right. And the second for me is not communicating properly, um, like managing up uh, without uh, honest uh, feedback for the team members. Um, and I have so many of those examples, like I lived through so many reorg. Uh, and um, you know mergers um, it's true it's hard to find like uh, I, I saw it in the pandemic it's hard to find um, a balance between over communicating and you know worrying uh, your team member and you know communicating not communicating uh, or communicating a little bit less but what I feel is that not communicating at all silence is never a good idea mm. um, and you know like I'll give you an example I was once uh, uh, told that I would get a potential role uh, in the future and I didn't hear anything about it so I suppose that you know like the manager will come back to me when the time is right um, and then in a team uh, meeting you know, the person who actually got that role went up and presented his business plan so like it was clear that they he knew from a long time and yet I didn't get any communication on it not before not after Things can change, you know, like uh, I wasn't depending on that role, but uh, the minimum you can do uh, is to communicate on it. And, you know, like uh, this creates, breaks the trust. Like I used to have a good relationship with this manager, but for me, it, it broke the trust and I couldn't um, think that they have my best interests in, in mind in the future. And last, <laughs> and I think it's the worst, is the micromanaging for me. And I'm a strong believer when you, that when you hire people, you hire them because you should trust them and uh, empower them to do the job. Otherwise, like, uh, don't hire a team. <laughs> I do think that, you know, like when you hire juniors, it's normal to be, do some handholding, um, help them out, be um, more like a regular catch-ups, etc. Yeah. But it's temporary and it's not, um, and it's to help them. It's not like to, you know, watch... Uh, what they're doing, etc. Now, uh, and when you hire seniors, please, like, <laughs> you have to, you have to let them. Like, why do you hire them in the first place? If you have to do the job, then either it's a mismatch and you hire wrong, uh, or uh, you you are micromanaging and you should stop doing it uh, immediately. So yeah. Yeah. Interesting mm -hmm. bit about what you learn from not just your great boss, but also from your worst bosses, right? Um, and yeah. I, can, I can also narrate maybe on later occasion, my experience of what I learned from my worst bosses and from my best bosses as well. So yeah, both are learning experiences. One is probably more painful than the other. That's the difference. Yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> right, Pascal, let's talk about the tougher questions now, right? And I want to talk about mm -hmm. something which has always bothered me uh, for long, which is about sexism at work. Now, mm -hmm. as a woman rising through the ranks, um, you must have either experienced it or, and or seen it happen to someone else, right? Um, it may be intentional or unintentional, explicit or implicit, but it happens. You're also co-chair of the Facts at Women's Business Resources Group, BRG, in the 
EMEA region, right? So I've got two questions here for you, given this context that we are talking about. The first is, what are you personally doing as a leader at FactSet to tackle gender-based discrimination and to support women in finance, which as you and I know, are disproportionately low compared to men in finance? Yeah. So like from my young age, I've always been um, passionate about this. So again, like to your point, um, it's the way you raised, like if mm. you're raised to see that you're equal to your brothers, why isn't the same everywhere uh, in the world? It's like uh, my idealist hat <laughs> that, uh, you know, takes over. So prior to fact that, you know, um, I uh, was already trying to do uh, some stuff. Like I'm married to a French man, as uh, I mentioned, and my kids are born in Lebanon, yet they don't have um, the nationality uh, and they cannot have it. So it really bothers me, especially when we're living there and people would tell me, but they're French. Why would you want them to have a passport, a Lebanese passport? For me, it means a lot. Um, and I try to raise as much awareness as I can. Unfortunately, I still haven't uh, managed to change the law. Or, um, but I do believe that if we continue like persistence again, if we can continue talking about this, um, things will change. Um, so this is on the personal side. Um, and even like before facts that I was, uh, thanks to some superiors, I was, uh, you know, part of reach uh, and also like mentoring, um, women mentoring, etc. cetera. Um, small um, activities here and there to see how I can uh, help out. And then when I joined FactSet, um, I tried to make changes. So when I joined FactSet, I had an old man team. Not that I mind, I actually you know, grew up with two brothers, so really like working with men, but I, it was really clear that there was a big imbalance in, uh, in the Middle East and Africa team. Mm. So uh, along with the other managers, we consciously decided that um, we needed to change that. And from the junior hires, we started to push uh, to get more women profiles, we went and spoke to the universities because also like the thing is sometimes they don't even apply. So mm. you have to go and do um, this like branding. Uh, and I'm really very proud to say that uh, the team today is uh, perfectly balanced, if not uh, women more than men uh, even because we recently had a small change. So it's again, it's I, th I consider that it's everyone's responsibility. You cannot look at your demographics and say, ah, I have more men than women. Mm. Okay. No, you, you really have to do something about it. And as a hiring manager, you can. Um, so this is uh, the first thing. And then, you know, I tried with HR to do more things uh, with uh, FactSet at the time. And then they decided to create the um, business resources group that actually represent not just women, but a lot of uh, other, you know, things we should be raising awareness on. Mm. Um, and I decided to apply for the co-chair uh, role and uh, I went to an interview and I was part of it. So, and you know, like you always ask yourself, um, what am I gonna bring to the table? But um, just sharing experiences, talking about it like I'm doing today, um, gets younger women know mm. that they're not alone. Uh, that it's not only them that uh, feel that there are microaggressions or that uh, feel that uh, imposter syndrome. Um, we still have a lot to do, but it's uh, like a, we're going in the right track, I would say. And, you know, 
but I do still get a little bit annoyed. <laughs> like uh, I am in the Middle East and Africa region, and when I go in the meeting room or even CFA events, etc., I am still either the only woman in the room or a minority mm. in the room, and. Um, um, even like when I go with the men colleagues, they think automatically that the man is heading the region, which makes me feel, you know, uh, frustrated. And it happens much more often than you think. So really, we really have still a long way to go. Mm. I mean, let's not talk about that last part there, Pascal, because from what I've seen in both my life in corporate as entrepreneur and teaching so many CFA candidates, and looking at my LinkedIn connections, a lot of who engage with me privately and via my posts, I feel a lot of women don't even bother going to finance because it looks so formidable, uh, partly because it's male-dominated. And or some of them join, but they give up or drop out because they feel it's just life is just too hard trying to power their way through the male-dominated hierarchy. So my question to you, the second question to you I have for you is, is at an individual level, Pascal, what are three practical things women can do to handle sexism at work in whatever shape or form so that they don't get demotivated and hence give up or drop out of a career or a job in finance? Mm -hmm. Yeah, just a parenthesis before that, like I think that, um, you know, Thank you for giving me this uh, opportunity because the more people like me uh, speak and um, share their stories, the more people can see that you can actually have a life mm. um, in a male and a career in a male dominated uh, sector will encourage more women to, uh, to go for it. So um, I do think that we all have and we rely on allies to you know, multiply our voice. Um, so if, again, like in the same spirit, I would say to those women and not to listen to the voice in their head, like uh, questioning why they are here or um, will I succeed in a, fi in, a, in a finance career, um, they need to be more confident. It's only them as, you know, facing those insecurities. No one else is seeing them. Probably everyone else is valuing their, uh, their work. So be confident, not arrogant, but <laughs> confident. Um, I would also say not to hesitate to speak up if you feel discriminated. I know I've had a couple um, of instances um, and you know, sometimes it's just unintentional. Mm. Um, just, you know, it's even like, I always give the example of my uh, two boys, like we went with my husband to, um, um, how do you say, like uh, to the desert, and I wanted to uh, drive the car in the desert. And my boy's first reaction was, no, mom, it's dad who drives the car, even though they see that we, you know, we do everything uh, half, half still, and they've not raised this way, still for them, it's uh, the man who drives the car. And so then I told them, you know what? No, it's uh, mom and you have to encourage me. And they started encouraging me, but it, it it's really is everywhere because mm. this is how, you know, uh, it is. But we have to raise awareness. And sometimes it's, um, it's really um, unintentional and we need to have more allies and speak about it more. Then I would say in network, um, like I know that the, 
how I got some of the opportunities was through the fact that I was building those relationships internally mm. and externally, internationally, remotely, not remotely. Uh, so the more people you know, the more uh, you know they will know about what you can do. And the solid network also gives you a safe space to speak up and to go to someone if you feel that you've been uh, discriminated in any way. Um, so it's really important. And I will finally say and uh, give a shout out to a friend in Lebanon uh, who's uh, decided to do something about it. Like it's not, you don't need to wait for your company to create a, a business resource group to do it for it to happen. You can decide to do it outside of informally or formally. So she has decided to create a business resource group in her company and act instead of just like complaining in your corner and say it's a very male dominated. Yes, but mm. if you don't do anything about it, it won't change in 20 or 30 or 50 years time. Yeah, actually I would like to point out or rather raise that point you raised about the networking which I sometimes I keep talking about like a broken record. Uh, I think women can and should network a lot more than they do now because networking gives you, like you said, allies, sponsors, mentors, potential employers. Um, and that's, that's very important when you're doing something so difficult um, and trying to find your voice in, in such an environment. Now, Continuing on the same theme of women in finance, Pascal, something else I recall you mentioning in our earlier call um, is the imposter syndrome, right? That seems to affect women far more than men. Um, as you told me, it has happened to you and it usually manifests itself in people thinking, women thinking that I don't deserve to be here and or that I can't handle that challenge, things like that. The result is that women often don't seize opportunities that they could do well at, and they meekly give way to men. So what are the three actions women can take to deal with this, uh, I would say, destructive imposter syndrome? Yeah, yeah. I can share how I dealt with it and continue to deal with it. Um, mm. Like first, if there is a role I really want to try, I always tell myself, what is the worst that can happen? <laughs> Once I realize that the worst thing is not the end of the world, I just go for it. And um, it gives me the strength and the enthusiasm to do it. So that's first. And honestly, like I always say, it's better to do it than to live with regret. Um, so many times we don't do it and we keep thinking, okay, well, mm. what if, what if, the second is like when you know about imposter syndrome. So for me, this is how it was. Like when I learned that this is something that women experience more than men, men do also. It's just mm. we do it more. It helps you overcome it, and um, you realize that okay, it's I'm not, I'm not the only one, and I should do something about it. And I read, I follow Adam Grant on LinkedIn, and I mm. read something that he said, and uh, maybe laugh a little bit because it says that uh, it's a paradox. Um, you know, others believe in you, mm. but you don't believe yourself, yet you believe yourself um, more than you believe them, which is not logical if you follow the logic. So mm. uh, you should believe their judgment more than yours. Um, mm. And finally, like um, I would say the last advice is that if, let's say, you get a seat at the table by mistake or love or call it whatever you like, like I consider that facts that uh, took a chance on me when uh, I got my role six years ago. You are there now, so make the best out of it. 
Mm. Um, work on yourself to be up to the challenge. In all cases, um, you know, to learn, you have to get out of your comfort zone. You have to take this role where you're not ready for it yet and you're going to learn along the way. Um, I always say that when I compare myself today to six years ago, of course I've changed, of course I've learned um, from the challenges, from the opportunities, from my mistakes. I learned from colleagues and we all did go through a pandemic together. We mm. all learned. So those, were, those are the three things that I would say to follow. Yeah, I mean, you wear quite a few hats these days, don't you, Pascal? Apart from the personal side of, of, of being a mom and managing the family, uh, and apart from being in professional side, a, a woman leader in finance, uh, you're also a hiring manager. You hire people, which is a very powerful position. And you have hired so many people in your career. Now, what were the best and worst three hires you made? And why were they, why were they the best and worst, in your opinion? Yeah. So first, it's, it's great to be able to hire and just uh, having uh, this opportunity to give someone a chance <laughs> is always uh, how, you know, like it's a responsibility and a great opportunity. Um, so recently, you know, maybe because I'm over 40 now, I was just looking at a personal assessment of what I like to do and what are my transferable skills. Provided I want to do something more creative, for example, or switch careers completely. Um, and I realized that I do love recruiting, building teams, um, reorganizing teams, finding the right like um, place for someone. Sometimes, you know, you have people, you move them around and, you know, they do wonder just because they were mismatched between the role and, and mm. what they can do. So I hired a lot in uh, different roles in different locations. Um, in entry levels, uh, but also, you know, in senior levels. And when I was hiring entry levels, it's kind of like the way it works. They enter and then they will take on other roles. So it's um, the internal promotion path, let's say. So here it's very important to hire for potential and for culture fit, because what you want is that this person in 18 or 24 months go into, let's say, a sales role or a consultant role or product manager role. So the skills you hire for or the potential uh, you hire for is going to be different and the personality mm. is going to be different. I would say like the worst hires were the ones where I didn't listen to my intuition uh, and uh, I wasn't patient enough to find the right candidate. I wanted the candidate tomorrow or yesterday, <laughs> let's say. And so I didn't give it time. I had my doubts, but I thought, okay, it's okay. Um, or I hired relying, like I do trust people until they prove me wrong, which I believe is a quality, but sometimes <laughs> it does put you in an awkward situation. And I did hire based on a recommendation of someone who has been in the company longer than me when I just joined or something like this, which I kind of regret because um, it's your responsibility at the end of the day. Mm. Um, and so yeah, like uh, on the best hi hires though, I think it's the ones where I took a chance on people. Like uh, I mentioned that I really value, you know, different opportunities where the company took a chance on me, like early on in Thompson Financial and Thompson Reuters and Factset. I believe it really, you know, gives you this uh, extra boost where you say they took a chance on me, I'm going to show them that they were right. And um, uh, I ran into someone uh, 
recently and it's exactly what, what he said he's like that I hired actually and his work was like yeah I can't thank you enough for giving me the role uh, despite not having any industry experience and it changed his life and it meant a lot for me um, so mm. the best hires for me are definitely on attitude and and not on technical skills. For me, uh, if you have the right attitude, you're motivated, you go the extra mile, you upskill quickly. And I've seen it happen uh, several times. I will give the example that uh, my husband learned Arabic when he was like in his 30s. So, um, and this is just because he was curious enough and uh, wanted to you know, really learn the culture. So if he can do it, mm. um, you know, you, anyone can learn as, uh, a skill, um, but what is important is the soft skills behind it. Is you have to be curious, you have to have, have the right attitude, you have to be persevering. All those are soft skills. You know, Pascal, they call it soft skills. Yet it's the hardest to learn. I mean, I know lots of professionals who are technically very well qualified, right, and skilled, but rubbish at um, dealing with people. And we're talking of people in their thirties and forties, not youngsters. Now, you must be good at interpersonal relations yourself to have made it this far in corporate. And of course, I can sense that with all the conversations we have had over the past few weeks. Can you inform the listeners on three ways, Pascal, by which they can get better at this very hard skill of soft skills? Yeah. Uh, so first I would say, to actively listen. I think we touched on it uh, already when mm. we were talking about the manager, so I won't go into a lot of details, but uh, listening will help you build uh, better relationships with uh, your stakeholders, whoever they are, clients or others. Um, you know, I always say that uh, people buy from people and for people are likable, but for them to like you, you have to make it about uh, them, not you when you're talking. Mm. So, you know, ask those open-ended questions, uh, be genuinely interested in what they're telling you about, what they're telling you. Um, you know, always give the example also that six months down the line, you meet them again, you mention what they told you, it really goes a long way. Like so many times people say, oh, wow, you remember. Uh, and, you know, this is really important. And this is how listening is, is really important in any relationship and um, in us being in a society. Mm. Um, that would be for uh, like the first one. Uh, the second one, I would say, so practice, practice opening, uh, listening, actively listening, open-ended questions, because it's hard like uh, to do it and harder and harder now uh, with, uh, you know, social media and doing mm. so many things at the same time. Um, another thing that I learned actually from a sales manager who used to report to me and is now in our London office, uh, he used to be the champion of asking for feedback. He always asked for feedback, like uh, from whoever, not only from me, from colleagues, from more junior uh, um, members of his team. Um, he would go into a class meetings, ask for feedback. And, you know, like people were shy in the beginning on sharing yeah. the feedback because they never know how people would take it. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, the more and more you ask for it, the more you get this kind of feedback. Um, and, you know, like sometimes you won't agree with it, uh, but it's important to see how also people perceive you so that you can change things or uh, uh, correct whatever, um, you know, you, you want to uh, mention. Mm. 
Um, and then the last one I would say is uh, I learned recently, and it's about uh, focusing on your strengths. So a lot of the personality tests or sales management uh, uh, courses, they always tell you those are your strengths, those are your weaknesses, and they focus on your weaknesses. This uh, method, I found it very positive. It tells you, okay, you are very strong in those things. So why don't you amplify those? Um, mm. Still work on your, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, weaknesses, but amplify, uh, amplify those. And uh, I found this really important. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, something I always wanted to ask you was, you know, given your profile at work as well as having a personal life and quite an active personal life, what are the three things, Pascal, that you do or have done that enables you to juggle a busy work life as a senior executive with raising two small kids and managing a family? So what are the hacks? Yeah. I would just say that I would like this question to be also asked to men. <laughs> like one day will come <laughs> where it will also be a question for men. And um, <laughs> so first, I, I would say that I don't choose the employer based on compensation or material things. Uh, and it's true, like it could have changed the course of uh, my life if I had, had done that. Uh, but the values, like the company that I work for um, stands for, are really important and how they manage, um, you know, how they take care of their employees. Um, I'm not saying I work for free, no, <laughs> mm. but uh, it's important. And I, I personally think even though a lot of women uh, came out of the pandemic um, in like in a, they were hit the most. I also think that it also created like kind of made it normal for people to have flexible working uh, mm. um, hours. It, it, like I know that I didn't use this flexibility, even though my employer used to let me do that, but mm. I, I was scared of the judgment. But now that I see that everyone is using it, regardless if they're married, unmarried, they have a family, they have a family, mm. men, women. And so it really gave me more confidence of using it without having uh, this judgment that I felt might happen. <laughs> Second, I would say um, uh, that um, I would lie if I said that my uh, career wouldn't be uh, a standstill when I was uh, like uh, building my family. It, it was on standby. And I was a little bit frustrated because it, it was time also with my move to Lebanon. And in Paris, you know, like they I had my network, my sponsors. So every kind of two years, uh, I was being promoted. In Lebanon, I stayed in the same role for seven years. Of course, it changed a little bit. My remit changed, but still, it was still the same role. So uh, I felt frust frustrated. Um, but what I would say is like, you know, I got one of my promotion, I got them just after maternity leave. And mm. uh, it was, you know, a manager, a man manager, so not a woman, uh, he was breaking the bias at, at that time and a lot do that. So my point is, you know, um, you're focusing on your family, uh, you, you feel your career is at standstill still, but keep doing what you're doing and also let your employer know. Sometimes they assume and assumptions are mm. very, uh, you know, risky. I always say like that you do a lot of things just based on assumptions. They might assume that you want to take it slow because you have um, your first child or second and they're still young 
or you have a family that looks something different for you, like if you're taking care of um, your parents. Or, so they just assume. So let them know um, because, you know, sometimes they want to give you this uh, opportunity, but they just feel you're not ready. Mm. And third, I would say have a support system. Uh, so, uh, for example, we made a conscious choice to move to Lebanon at the time where we decided to have a family because we felt it's easier for us to have a support system there. Mm. Um, it, also, my husband was on board, but also, like uh, I mentioned him a lot because uh, for him, those are, they are his kids too. <laughs> you know, it's not like he's just playing with them. He takes care. Uh, of them as much as I do, if not more. So mm. this also helps me to have the career I have. So, and, you know, I learned through my last certification that um, everyone has a circle of life and you don't have to have it all the time, 100% uh, mm. in every element of circle of life, like uh, family, career. Sometimes you have to give way for um, their family over their career, etc. And it's okay. <laughs> and mm. uh, the importance is, you know, to maintain balance and uh, for you to be happy and comfortable. Yeah, I mean, which is which neatly segues to my next question because everyone, as they proceed in their career, Pascal, they they face questions, right? They face options. Uh, they have to surmount problems. Uh, at work, sometimes linked to their personal life as well. And it's always useful to have a sounding board, like an advisor or, or a coach or a mentor. So I wanted to ask you, have you ever been coached or mentored in your career, even if informally? And if so, how do you find uh, your, you are, how did you and your mentor find each other? And what was the experience of the coaching or mentoring? Yeah, I have been coached and mentored uh, formally and informally, and um, I can't stress how much it's important. And uh, lucky, I was lucky to have that, and I still, you know, look for it um, at this stage in my career. And I hope that you know, like the listeners will think about it and like uh, have it as a call to action to have um, a mentor or a coach, whether formally or informally. So mm -hmm. for the informal ones. Um, it was more like by discussions you have uh, with senior people or even junior people that uh, do something that you would need help on or that have some uh, vision that is different from yours. Um, and this is how it started, like a conversation that went by and became a little bit more uh, of a mentoring uh, on an informal level. So it's more affinities and I would say friendship, but you don't necessarily need to be like uh, friends with your mentor or coach. Mm. Um, on the former side, um, I've been lucky to be in several companies where they took uh, mentorship, coaching, and sponsorship seriously. And uh, in the last experience I had, I was uh, actually sponsored by a leadership uh, a member. Um, and I still have a very good relationship with this person, even though they left the company, but uh, mm. it was really very good. And at that time, I needed my mentor to be a sponsor. I needed, uh, because, you know, a mentor can be different things. Yeah. And at that time, I needed a voice for my region close to um, the CEO, close to the company's headquarters to get, you know, I needed that sponsorship. 
uh, and I really valued this experience. Mm. I'm going to get a little bit personal now because in our mm -hmm. earlier conversations, in all our earlier conversations, you have always come across as super calm, right? <laughs> and positive. Mm -hmm. And this was confirmed by one of your colleagues who said that the one big reason why they hired you, as you, as you relate earlier, why they hired you to manage the help desk, despite your lack of experience, was because, you know, you, you, you came across as very grounded and calm. So I think it's not only a rare quality, it's an essential that uh, for any leader, right, to be so. So how do you manage to stay calm as a leader, especially in these volatile times? Yeah. Um, I think it's unfortunate to say, but maybe it's <laughs> when uh, in every Lebanese that grew during the war, like grew up to the war, you think uh, it's okay, it's not the end of the war. Mm. Um, but also like through professional experiences, it doesn't mean that I cannot get uh, angry and uncalm, <laughs> but it takes longer time uh, for me or like for me to like show the stress, uh, etc. It does look easy maybe to some, but it's not. And, um, but I always try to remember that, you know, I managed to get through something very hard, like remind myself those experiences, those mm. examples where I, you know, I went through the other side. So <laughs> I came through the other side and I, I think to myself, I can do it again. It's not uh, that complicated. Um, another thing that happened is like also, you know, it's, uh, uh, in the corporate world, you get a lot of corporate trainings and trainings, etc. But not many stick. Like some of them, just give you uh, it's a good refresher, but uh, they don't stick. One really stuck out is uh, stuck out is um, one that I did at Thomson Reuters that uh, tells you that you shouldn't focus on the things you cannot control. Like those mm. are things that whatever you do about, uh, you're just gonna dwell on them, but you can't change them. It's better to look at the things you can actually control and look for the solution. So this is how, I, this is something I try to follow uh, on a daily basis. So it's mm. better to, you know, focus your energy on something you can manage, something you can control and things will be good. <laughs> yeah, more power to you. I wish there were more people like you in corporate, to be honest. And I wish I could absorb <laughs> some of that calmness from you because I'm not always super calm. <laughs> Um, now, I'm going to dig a little bit more personal, Pascal. So I'm quite fitness and nutrition focused. And I noticed with huge delight that you are a certified coach for the Institute of Integrative uh, Nutrition. And I think wellness is a highly relevant topic in this um, pandemic times. And leaders usually ignore this vital element in themselves and in their teams, right? So... This is the biggest question because I've got four sub-questions for you, right, on this topic. So important. First question is, there's usually a trigger that makes people change their lifestyle. What made you focus on wellness and take up this course? Yeah. So I was approaching 40. Uh, so I was, it was my 39th birthday and I was approaching 40. And um, things got you know, better at work. And I um, decided I want to go on a health journey. And I even posted it on my social media account. I thought, you know, you know, when you do it, when you say it in front of uh, people, um, mm. you become more accountable for it. But also they encourage you. There was so much encouragement coming. 
Um, it's funny that I'm talking about this here because it's something, it's a subject that I, like, I don't know, 20 years ago, you'd ask me to talk about it. I wouldn't have said yes, mm. because I struggled a lot in my teenage years um, with weight. Um, I would lose and go back uh, up uh, and gain even more because I was always doing like this, you know, I have a strong will. I would follow it through the letter for a short period of time. Um, it's fat diet and then um, gain it all back again because I wasn't really changing anything in, uh, in, in my mindset. So I decided that day that before I turn 40, I want to be healthy. And for me, this is, was the first time that healthier did not mean skinny or did not mean uh, being at my ideal weight or fitting in my uh, 18 years or 20 years uh, genes. It was really be healthy, be in shape, um, be confident in my clothes, be able to breathe, go up the stairs without uh, you know, losing breath, uh, play with my boys, um, being <laughs> uh, in front of the camera lens. I know that we had a... <laughs> A lot of back and forth on the pictures. I love taking pictures, but uh, me in the pictures is a little bit less. <laughs> so, um, you know, and I had also like um, some health issues with hormones, limbs, uh, even wanted a third child. Um, so I decided really I want to go on a health uh, you know, journey. And I lost uh, 12 kilos on my own. So like uh, in one year. So it took a long time, but it was really through changes like uh, something long-term. Then I went on holidays and I started like losing this uh, will to, to make changes. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna go back again to get help and uh, pay money again to a health coach and uh, do a, like a more structured diet. Um, it worked, but then the pandemic started and uh, the stress of it, missing mm. my family. We also bought a house in the middle of the pandemic and um, we started doing renovations, uh, pressure at work and homeschooling when both of us, you know, uh, uh, have a busy career. So, mm. yes, I am um, an emotional eater. I did try to exercise with my kids and family, um, but, you know, Eventually, I got uh, the weight back. Um, but what I realized is that the weight that I got back quickly was the one that I got through diet. And the other one took a long time mm. because I had like a really healthy relationship with, with food while, while losing those. Um, so again, also like during the pandemic, I think a lot of people ask themselves what they can study, etc. So I always loved studying. I thought, okay, let me do something AI or digital transformation related to my uh, career. But then I thought, okay, um, you know what? I'm going to use the money that I was paying the health coach and actually get certified myself as a health coach because who's best, you know, like uh, positions to to know more about myself than, mm. uh, than me. And, you know, I wanted to understand why, uh, what is the trigger that makes me eat and binge eat? Mm. Um, and I really learned uh, a lot. I really liked it because they show you a lot of different uh, um, opposed methods, I would say, and it's up to you to see what works for you. So it's all about um, bio-individuality and things mm. like this. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not where I was in 2019, but uh, I am working towards it and uh, putting in place things that, you know, work long-term. So um, yeah, exercise more. I, uh, I realize what is triggering my binge eating. Uh, I try to cook. 
Um, yeah. So I think it's a daily struggle, but I'm on the right track. Yeah. Going back to the point which you made, uh, the answer to the previous question about doing things about it. So what are the three key steps that you're taking regularly as part of your transition to better health? Yeah. So first I would say exercise. Like if you would ask my family or anyone who knows me if I would ever exercise regularly, um, it wasn't, you know, I like watching sports, but not exercising. But today I do exercise and uh, regularly, like uh, even if it's 10, 15 minutes, I still do it. And it really helps me mentally. Like I know we talk a lot about mental health. This is something that really, you know, changed my mood. Yeah. Cooking more, like I love cooking. I love experimenting with the cooking and mixing things that you don't think of mixing. Um, but I, I don't know, I just felt out of it and like I didn't have the will to cook anymore. Um, but now I'm, you know, I make it a point to cook again. And uh, at least I know what is going in the food for me and my family. Mm -hmm. um, I also started acupuncture, which is something like, okay. again, uh, putting needles in my uh, <laughs> In my body would have not been something I would think about uh, earlier on. Yet it's uh, I started it and it's really great um, and helping me a lot. Mm. Yeah, and and uh, my third question was actually uh, related to this uh, same uh, process of change, right? Because it's usually so tough for Scar to develop new habits and drop old ones, right? I mean, so at a personal level, I'm very curious. What were your three biggest problems uh, when moving to a healthier lifestyle and how did you solve this? So it's exactly that. Like, I think what used to happen is let's, let's say I would do something good and then I would go into doing something that is not exactly what I should be doing for mm. healthy eating. And then I would say, okay, I'll drop the ball. So, and stop it because it's very hard to change habits. Correct. Um, yeah, so what I used to do is like sometimes I would eat things when I'm binge eating, I eat things that I didn't even, uh, you know, like. Um, but today, what I try to do is limit the temptations at home mm. um, and be mindful of what I'm what is causing me to eat, to eat more. And I try to do something else to like uh, put my mind out of it. So, for example, I love dancing, I love music, I put on my favorite music. Um, and that's if I can. I don't journal. I know something uh, like uh, some people do, uh, and it's something that is recommended. But for me, I had a bad experience. So it doesn't work for me. But this is key. It's important to understand what works for you. It doesn't mean that if it works for someone else, it can work for you. So um, that's one. Second was uh, to motivate myself to exercise. I have like, I don't know, I would go and subscribe to gyms here and there, the best, uh, the closest, uh, mm. with a friend, etc. but I would barely go. So, and I found that what works for me is working, uh, exercising at home. I have mm. a friend who uh, created like a dance class that is all based on feeling the music and enjoying it. And it works for me. Uh, or I do like a small, short videos. So I'm here, I'm saying to myself, I came, I tried, and you know, it starts with seven minutes, then you end up doing 40 minutes. The other day I ran, which is something that I would have never done 
you know, and it's important to tell yourself, you know, I was so happy, like I ran. <laughs> so it's important also to encourage yourself and tap yourself on the back. Mm. Um, the, the, the hardest is eating, eating less fats and sugars. Um, mm. And I try to do like the same recipe in the oven um and try to cut down on wine which is an achievement on its own when you're married <laughs> a frenchman <laughs> yeah i mean it can be quite tempting when you have all this uh, very delicious fattening and sugary foods cheaply and easily available at around around you all the I time and, and of course my, my last question on this very important topic is uh, the power of results to motivate you right so it's it's nice to see regular results coming in so my question was what are the significant positive results that you are seeing in yourself both at work and at home as a result of the above transition to well-being do you advocate better health at work as an as a incidental question yeah so i have so much more energy um, mm. and i felt more confident like uh, on the weight of 2019-20 uh, but i will get back there so i'm not worried um i do advocate for better health at work i'm really proud to say that uh, you know when the pandemic started the first well meds mm. uh, initiatives taken by faxet globally came from uh, team members uh, from the Faxit team, because we knew that some, like uh, someone in the team did, did yoga, someone did uh, meditation. So we asked them to do during our check-ins, um, run it for the team, and then they run it for the entire company. So um, I do, I do that, and I do, you know, encourage that. But I also want to raise awareness, and this is one of the reasons that I said that maybe I wouldn't have talked about it 20 years ago, but today mm. I, I am talking about it because. It's important also to raise aware, uh, awareness on the discrimination one might get when they are over, overweight in the work environment. I think we tend to not think about it because people think in their mind that, you know, like race or gender, uh, mm. this, you know, bias is different because weight, people can actually do something about it. It's my responsibility and everyone's responsibility, but yet, there is a bias. And, mm. um, I remember that uh, when things got tough at work, uh, I was binge eating and emotional uh, eating. So I arrived at the highest weight I've ever seen. And I cannot say that, you know, everyone was very inclusive uh, in the workplace. So just like, you know, uh, it doesn't get to me as much. Uh, but when I was a teenager and until my 30s, I had a very hard time with my body image. Mm. I didn't wear short sleeves. I was wearing like my brother's clothes and uh, very loose, which made me look even more overweight. And I, I hope that this, you know, sharing this uh, shows that, you know, we talk a lot about bullying uh, at school, but it does continue, I would say, in the, in the workplace, maybe not in the same way, mm. um, but we have to be inclusive in every sense of it, not just uh, pick and choose uh, who, what inclusivity is important for us. Mm. Well, we have been talking for quite long now. Time flies. Hey, when, uh, when, when, when you're having fun, I always wrap up my interviews with experienced professionals like yourself um, by asking them to give advice to youngsters. So valuable. So what three pieces of advice, Pascal, would you give 
anyone in his or her early 20s who is today either entering the workforce or in earlier career stage? Yeah, I would say it's quite challenging to enter the workforce today. Like mm. um, I remember like when I joined, we had like a five weeks training sessions uh, all together. So it helps you like uh, meet senior managers, uh, meet other team members. So it's all happening virtually or at least in a hybrid mode today. I would still say not to have this as a um, like an obstacle to create your network. So create it virtually anyway, like find those opportunities to connect with seniors, with peers, with colleagues, even if your company is not trying to do it. Because I do think that companies also are realizing how do we, on, do we onboard those young uh, people who are joining our company. But even if your company is not doing the extra effort, do it yourself. A network is really important. Ask questions, uh, shadow, um, you know, just have a 15 minutes chat on Teams or Zoom uh, with anyone and they will appreciate it. Mm. And it will help you, you know, like get to know the company better, get to know people better. And it will be very important as you grow into your career into the company. So that's one. Second, I would say, um, and this is something that I always say when I was managing the help desk, I know that, you know, a lot of people was telling me, even when I started at the help desk, but you majored in finance, why are you starting at the help desk? I always say that it's not the role that defines you. You define the role you're in. And um, please don't stick to the job description. Like, I don't like the attitude where this is my job description wow. and that's exactly what I do. Um, you know, like, I think you learn a lot. Of course, sometimes, you know, you don't want to step on other people's uh, shoes, but you learn a lot from being curious to know, to do more than what your role entitles. And um, also you become, you know, like um, down the line, and you hear down the line, you, you become the like obvious option for uh, moving into the next role in your career path. Um, and then I would say, keep an open mind. Sometimes uh, your next step is not exactly what you imagine, uh, but if you stay curious and then a couple of years down the line, you realize that, ah, this experience was actually mm. really good for me. Um, you know, you always read uh, that a career is not a linear path. And that's very true because I remember like uh, when I moved from a management role uh, to a sales role, individual contributor role, people told me that why? Mm. Um, and for me, I, okay, I would have continued as a manager, but then at a certain time, you, I was doing well as a manager, but as I go along, I would have maybe not done as well. Um, so it's not a problem to kind of take a step back for people in, their, in people's mind taking a step back. For me, it wasn't a step back. And this is where I want to say to people, like you define your success. And what matters is what makes you happy and proud at the end of the day. Mm. Well, that brings us to the end of this very interesting episode, Pascal. Um, mm. I must thank you for many things, starting with your patience. I think we've gone through, what, four uh, versions of the script of making changes <laughs> back and forth. Um, but, you know, we, we've got a very concise, comprehensive message that anyone um, pursuing a career would find it invaluable to listen to. Thank you for your patience to start with. Thank you for your honesty, because I think, uh, especially regarding upbringing and, and um, 
dealing with bad bosses, dealing with imposter syndrome and sexism and you know wellness, weight loss and gain issues. Thank you for the very brave honesty that you've demonstrated, which I think a lot of young women can take heart from and be inspired by. Um, thank you for the insights. I think uh, when you're when you're honest and when you're when you're patient and you, all these insights come together in a very neat package, which I hope this podcast will be seen as by by, by people listening to it. So thank you for all that, and hopefully one day uh, we'll meet face to face when I'm back in Dubai. <laughs> hopefully, and uh, I wanted to thank you also uh, from my side. Like. Um, this was really very uh, interesting also for me. Uh, I think you put your uh, guests at ease so that they can yeah. be their authentic self and share uh, their experiences. And this means a lot because as I said, I've done it before mm. and it's um, always hard like to kind of uh, reveal yourself, but uh, through the back and forth, you uh, give uh, more and more, uh, you know, you trust more your host and give uh, more insight. And I do hope that uh, everyone who watches this finds it useful. Thank you so much again, Pascal. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you found it insightful and inspirational. If you did enjoy this episode, please drop us a review and spread the word. And be sure to check out more exclusive content on therealfinancementor.com and my LinkedIn profile, which is Binot Shankar CFA. Let's keep in touch. Just add your name to the mailing list on therealfinancementor.com and we'll tell you about new episodes, plus book reviews, upcoming events and blogs. Till the next time, onwards and upwards.